Hello and welcome back to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy. In today's episode, in honor of May being Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I invited my friend Dr. Therese onto the show. Dr. Therese brings her expertise and her experience in sharing with us the impact of the past year on the AAPI community, as there's been an increase in hate crimes and violence against this community. We explore the impact of this trauma. We discuss some of the stigmas and unique challenges and strengths of the Asian American and Pacific Islander experience as it relates to mental health. We name ways that together we can continue to do our own anti-racism work and so much more. I'm so thrilled to have her on the podcast and I can't wait to share this conversation with you. So let's jump in. listening to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy Freitas. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, mom to three, and I support mamas just like you who want a supported, loving, and rested postpartum so that you can flourish in that first year with baby. In this podcast, I'm sharing my conversations with perinatal experts from around the world and with parents who've been through it. While I hope that this podcast is supportive to you, it is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed health provider. I'm so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, Dr. Therese. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me today. I'm so excited you're tuning in from Portugal, which is so amazing. I cannot wait till me and my family can get out there since um, that's where my husband is from and my kids are half Portuguese. I cannot wait to get out there and have some coffee with you in Lisbon. (laughs) Oh my gosh. How are you doing, Therese? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm going to hold it down here until you get the chance to come out (laughs) and uh, connect with your family's culture. But um, yeah, Portugal is great. I I absolutely love living here. And yeah, I mean, it's a a challenging time for sure in in some ways to to be a therapist, to be um, a a woman of color, but I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and excited, excited to talk about this topic with you today. Mm, Me too. Okay, before we dive in, maybe you can share with our listeners a little bit about your background and your context. You and I have recorded before, so um, Mm -hmm. I'll be sure to include a link to that in the show notes because we've recorded an episode on this podcast all about teletherapy, just Mm -hmm. to kind of normalize that experience and talk a little bit more about what teletherapy is, both for the therapist and for the client. Uh, But can you share with us a little bit more for this episode, for those for those who have not gotten a chance to get to know you yet, a little bit about your background and your context. I'd love to. Yeah. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been practicing for over a decade. And I have, if, if anyone listened to the teletherapy episode, I've been practicing in telehealth for over five years now. And so when I started, it was back in the day when no one was doing it. And I, I honestly got kind of judged for it. And yeah. now post-COVID, everybody's doing it. And so that was a really interesting kind of journey to see how 
see the rise of telehealth and teletherapy. Um, So I am still seeing clients. I love my clients and I love getting to do that, but I'm also an entrepreneur. I'm the CEO and founder of Exploring Therapy, which is a community to help people build a life they don't need a vacation from. And so Mm -hmm. I talk a lot about... um, uh, toxic productivity and how to kind of get out of the workaholic culture. Mm. I talk a lot about remote work wellness since that's something that I'm passionate about. And I like to share about my life as a digital nomad. So whether that's me being here in Lisbon or traveling around the world um, while I'm also working as a therapist, I love to inspire people with living their life, maybe a little bit outside the box, but in a way that works for them and makes them happy. So, um, yeah, those are, those are some of the highlights of, of how I spend my time these days. Oh my gosh. You, you really do sort of pave your own path. And it's so interesting because, you know, we were talking, you were talking about how teletherapy was something that you've been doing for a very long time, even before it was as common as it is now. And you were also one of the first therapists that I connected with when I got on Instagram as a therapist, as a professional. And gosh, I wish I need to go back and look at our old DMs to see like, how, how did we connect? I, I think that you, like I found you and then you were like, come, come Cassidy and join, join my circle of people, of other therapists that are on, on social media right now. Cause I remember being so um, nervous and scared at first yeah. because there were not a lot of therapists at the time. I mean, this was Year, this was a couple of years ago. I think and it was 2018, right? Yeah, I think it was 2018. Oh my gosh. And then, yeah, and it, it, was, it was so nice to connect with you. You are just so warm and inviting and supportive. And it was like, okay, if she's doing this, like it's okay for me to be here too. And I don't know, you really gave me permission to kind of step into this digital space with um, oh. with more confidence. You truly did. You you played a big part of my journey showing up in the digital space. So I'm just forever oh grateful to know you. Thank you for that. I mean, same. I think um, back in, in those days, it was really scary to be any, like a therapist on any form of social media. And yeah. um, we're, we're, I guess, very OG in that way. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I I was scared too, and I I couldn't have gotten through those initial days and and be where I am today if it were not uh, for the support of amazing fellow therapists, mm-hmm. mostly um, you know fellow women therapists like you. Yeah. Um, and now I feel like we've got like this girl gang of amazing <laughs> boss lady therapists. We've got like. Um, amazing entrepreneurs, published authors, world speakers. I mean, it's so inspiring. So I'm, I'm grateful that we took the plunge back then. Me too. And I'm so glad that I was, that you, you can, I think that you did it first. (laughs) Teresa, I think that like you're on first. And then I was like, okay, if she's doing this, she's paving the path. I kind of like jumped on the path with you. I'm like, okay. If she's I true, I honestly don't remember, but thanks for giving me the credit. (laughs) I think I I really do. I mean, I think that I mean maybe I was on around the same time, but I was I was scared. So I was like not Mm -hmm. I was not I was not really showing up as me, right? I was I was still 
had this sort of like fear-based, like I just got a blank slate mm-hmm. kind of idea in my mind. And then mm-hmm. I saw you showing up as human and professional. And then mm-hmm. it inspired me to be able to integrate all of my identities um, in showing wow. up in this space. So I'm grateful to you for that. I love that. Now look at you. (laughs) Crushing it out there. (laughs) Well, when this episode airs, um, it will be May, uh, which is as you shared with me, because I didn't know this at first, and you brought, you shed light on this for me, that it is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So as we are honoring the contributions of the AAPI community this month, Um, We also are going to be recognizing here in this episode, and I'm so grateful to you for coming on to talk about this, the systemic racism that has always been there, but has received more public recognition by the media this past year. Um, So first, I want to check in on you, Therese. How How are you doing, first of all, as someone who holds so much space for others? Hmm. Yeah, thank you for asking. It, isn't it funny how the simplest question can feel so loaded these days? <laughs> um, yeah, how are you doing doesn't feel so simple anymore. But no, um, I, I, how am I doing? I am processing a lot. I think, like many therapists, twenty twenty just it felt like it completely sideswiped us, and we we didn't see it coming. We did, weren't prepared for it, and. Every therapist that made it through 2020 is such a hero to me for learning how to navigate such a difficult year. So I think I'm really still coming off the heels of processing all of that. Yeah. In addition to that, all of the anti-Asian violence that's been going on has been really heartbreaking to see. So I would say that I, in some ways, am grieving. Um, mm-hmm. I'm tired. Uh, I'm at times discouraged, but I would also say that I'm hopeful, um, mm. hopeful and optimistic. I would say that now people are having conversations like the one we're going to have, and they're bringing awareness and and empathy is building, and so I'm hopeful that our world is trying to be better, and uh, so yeah, that's that's what I'm hanging on to. I'm I'm hoping that this year and. Um, through conversations like this and through people caring that the the horrible things that we've seen in the news will not continue to the extent that they have been. Yeah. You know, I oftentimes when it comes to my own anti-racism work and my own journey, mm-hmm. I always come back to, you know, this. there was a very a pivotal moment in this work for me um, when I was in a class, and this was a social context of health class, and mm-hmm. I just had a really great professor who wasn't afraid to name things in the moment when they were happening in the classroom, Like, which is one of the best learning opportunities is to actually identify when um, – you know, when, when privilege, when oppression, when racism is happening in the moment to be able to have that be called out, to be in a space where then you can reflect on what's coming up for you in those actual moments. Right. And, um, in, in that work, um, in that class, a lot of things that, uh, because of my privilege, I had not had to think about every day. Mm-hmm. Um, were light was shed on those parts for me, and those ex- and and, that, and from that point forward, I could no longer 
uh, deny, right, the privilege Mm -hmm. that I held as a white person who also, um, white passing, I'm half Hispanic, but I walk through the world as a white woman. And uh, and also to acknowledge the intersectionality of my identity as a woman, right? And I think that up until that point, I had been so focused on, I had been very focused on, you know, I've experienced oppression as a woman. Um, but in that, I was not acknowledging the privilege that I held. Mm. And in that class, this was brought to my attention. And it was almost like, it was almost like, you know, when, you, when you're a fish and you're swimming in water, it's like you can't really see the water you're swimming in, but it's there. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. like this, uh, the, all of a sudden privilege and my identities, I and the way that I walk through the world with privilege, all of a sudden I could see it, right? Mm-hmm. And I could see how I had been blind to some of these things up, you know, up until this point and that I had been contributing to white supremacy through my inactions, through my actions. And for instance, in that class, I was taking up a lot of space, talking about things, trying to basically convince people that I wasn't racist. And that was mm-hmm. called out in that classroom. Um, and that was really hard. But wow. what I see, what I see in what, what I see happening this year, and I'm, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is it's almost mm-hmm. like people are beginning to see things that, have, that you know, people of color live with every day and do not have the privilege to ignore. Um, but mm-hmm. people are beginning to see things because, you know, whether it's being caught on camera or it's being discussed more or, or people are, are being called out for things, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's so much more... It's been very visible this year. It's almost been like this peeling away of some of these, um, of some of these things, and I think that it's very painful, right, mm-hmm. and very hard, but so necessary. And and I know for me this year, because again, my anti-racism work is not a destination, right? Like it mm-hmm. will be, mm-hmm. I'll be continuing to unlearn and learn throughout my entire life. Um, and this year, gosh, I mean, there's been a lot that I've had to really rumble with this year myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like there's been, as you said, a lot of grief and pain. Um, but I, I, I love that you're also acknowledging some hope, right? That maybe through these, through this pain, there will also be some hopefully, gosh, gosh, I hope, movement forward to, mm-hmm. to something better, you know? Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, I think that you're not alone at all in what you experienced in that in that classroom because I I think our education our education at least if you're educated in the US, um our system really fails us. It does not lend a voice mm-hmm. to the oppressed, you know, yeah. and I think like many other Americans, I learned about Martin Luther King and I thought I was really aware of yeah. of what racism was like in the U.S. And I was so wrong. And so yeah. I, I think that what you're bringing up is that, yeah, now we're seeing the water. Now we're seeing mm-hmm. what we're swimming in. We're, I think there's people that are hearing more and more open and learning about their privilege in a unique way. I think um, – there's amazing educators out there that are outside of a traditional classroom, like on Instagram and TikTok wow. that are taking their time and energy to help educate the world and, and their communities about yeah. um, about the things that are going on. And I think you're right. I think 
things have reached kind of a critical mass. And so whether it's media coverage or that we're seeing more videos or we have more um, educators outside of tr the traditional classroom, the, the conversations that are happening are long overdue, but very powerful. And so um, I know I'm learning too. I'm learning so much. And I think yeah. for me, I spent a lot of time perhaps even denying my own identity as a woman of color, um, mm. perhaps out of a desire to assimilate, out of a desire to um, mm. you know, capitalize on whatever privilege that I could. And um, I'm, I'm very grateful that that people are open to learning and reading books. And I'm constantly inspired. I mean, even you and I, in, a, in an earlier conversation, you were talking about working with a diversity and inclusion yeah. consultant. And I was like, wow, thank you for that. Yeah. That's amazing because that was something that I felt like was not very common for people to do not that long ago. And now it's happening more and more. So um, yeah, I'm seeing, I'm seeing hope. I'm seeing, I'm seeing like little springs come up of like yeah. change, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's, it's as much as there are hard things that are going on in the world, I, I do choose to see the hope. Yeah. The events of this year pushed me to say, okay, really as a business owner, um, as a person that carries power and privilege in, um, as a, a, in my profession and um, as a white woman, what, what can I be doing more in my business and in my personal life? Um, right. And so I'm, I'm, I'm paying somebody now um, uh, to, to support me in that journey. And I'm, I think that this year really pushed me to do that, you know? And so mm -hmm. I would love to hear more from you, um, specifically for the AAPI community. Um, mm -hmm. What has been, you know, the impact of, of, of this year? We can talk about this year mm -hmm. specifically, um, yeah. just when it comes to the mental health uh, for the AAPI community. Mm hmm well, just to provide, I think, a really necessary context, yes. within the past year, so basically since March of 2020, anti-Asian hate crimes have risen by more than 150%. Wow. And so um, there's been an organization called Stop AAPI Hate. They have cataloged nearly 4,000 hate incidents since last March. Um, and very likely that number is severely underreported because, and we'll, we can talk about this later when we go into the model minority myth, but um, often immigrants um, don't report crimes that happen to them. Mm -hmm. And so these numbers are pretty staggering, I think, and very concerning. Um, as, a, as a woman that's from Southern California, I think part of me wanted to believe that these acts of racism occurred in small towns in the middle of America. But the truth is that more and more we're seeing that they're happening in major major city centers, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York. And so it's impossible to ignore. And so when you take into account just the severity of these acts of violence and hate, um, it's had a, a very heavy impact on the AAPI community. Yeah. Um, I think that it, it's had an impact in ways big and small. So some of it has been that initially a lot of these crimes were not reported. So um, we saw news outlets 
for the most part, ignoring telling stories about violence against us. And that was disheartening because it meant that our the pain that the community was experiencing was not being publicly acknowledged through the media. I think that for many, the layers of trauma that are being experienced are profound. And, um, you know, the for, for some of us, this may be a newer experience. Obviously, we know for the Black community, um, especially in America, this has been something that has been generational and, yeah. um, and extremely profound. So um, this trauma shows up in so many different ways. I think um, one of the things I had to do this year for the first time was sit down with my parents and talk to them about hate crimes against Asians. And I had to, um, I had mm-hmm. to ask my parents to be more careful about going out in public and walking mm-hmm. to their car. And uh, this is the first time in my life I've ever had to talk to them about that and to be scared for what might happen to them. I, I know a lot of people's um, parents' generation are are not leaving the house, except unless they absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not just that watching the stuff on the news, um, whether it's murders or attacks or um, all sorts of just horrible things, um, the, it's not just the heaviness of that experience, but it's then all the ways that it impacts our lives negatively and hinders us from living a normal, happy, healthy life. Um, so it, it's difficult to say because we're a year in and it doesn't look like these crimes are yet subsiding. And it, it, we'll have to see what happens in the in the coming months, whether um, politicians and, and leaders will help do more to protect uh, the AAPI community from what's going on. When you, I, I think it's so important that we're talking here about about the impact and like naming it as as trauma. For for someone who's listening here, what are some of those potential symptoms of mm-hmm. trauma that somebody can maybe hear you mention or say and and to acknowledge? Wow, okay, I didn't necessarily because I think a lot of times people will say, "Well, I don't know if I experienced trauma here, right?" Um, mm-hmm. And people sometimes don't understand that vicarious trauma can be a thing, mm-hmm. or just having these conversations can be traumatic, or um, imagining the the potential things that could happen, even if you didn't experience it yourself, right? Um, yet um, there's that that's the piece there is the yet piece, right? And so, what are some of the s- potential symptoms um, that somebody can be can acknowledge that might then help them reach out to get support if they're listening? Yeah, and that's I think it's great also that you're bringing up vicarious trauma because even if something isn't happening to you directly. When you see violence happening against people that look like you, that can be very traumatic. And so trauma can look different for everybody, but um, some of the most common ways that we we see it surface, um, especially with the rise in anti-Asian hate, is people complain, uh, my clients especially will complain about not sleeping well, lose a loss of appetite, um, poor concentration, feeling intense anxiety and fear, maybe having huge impacts on your life, like you don't want to go to the store anymore, or, you know, you change your routines drastically because you're living in fear. Mm -hmm. Um, Trauma can sometimes look like 
um, you know, an extreme change to your life. So it can be that you're having extreme anxiety in a certain situation, but there's also kind of like the, the trauma that is more subtle and every day, um, the type of stuff where you just find that you, you can't go to sleep at night or you keep watching the news and you can't stop. Um, mm-hmm. and so I think that's actually one of the things that makes it tricky because, um, trauma can go undetected because we think that it's just normal. We think it's normal to just have some nights of not sleeping well or mm. or to, um, you know, be upset. But trauma is when these experiences are too much because we just were not designed to take in this type of information. We Humans weren't designed to see um, acts of violence again and again and again. Yeah. And so, um, especially with the Asian community, keep in mind that, um, we're, we're very likely to underreport our distress because we don't want to come across as weak, right? That's one mm-hmm. of the unfortunate things that comes up in terms of mental health stigma. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, those are just a few of the ways that trauma can, can show up and, there's a, there's a long list of other things too. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking here about the vicarious trauma. We're also talking here about um, experiencing, right, macro aggressions and safety mm-hmm. issues um, and, and, and witnessing these things, um, even if it didn't happen to you, but seeing it mm-hmm. every day on the news. What about microaggressions? Are are is this something that we could also potentially explore? And would you would you say that um, experiencing microaggressions um, as an Asian American Pacific Islander, mm-hmm. like is this also something that could contribute to or be traumatizing, right, or impact mental mm-hmm. health? Absolutely, microaggressions are are really interesting, and I would say in my own journey. I might have been at another point in time been the kind of person that said, oh, it's not that big a deal, I think, because mm-hmm. we're often just trained from from an early age to minimize our distress or to minimize the harm another person is causing us. And yeah. um, for those who are listening and you're wondering what is a microaggression, um, that is a – it's not obviously an overt um, – display of aggression. It is something that um, feels subtle. The experience of receiving a microaggression is you find yourself wondering like, did they mean that? Did they just say what they said? What does that mean? And should I be offended? I feel a little strange about this, right? You, You really second guess whether it's okay for you to feel upset about what they said. Some of the most common microaggressions um, against Asians and Pacific Islanders in the U.S. would be something like, where are you really from, right? Mm -hmm. So someone asks where you're from because they see that you are not white. And so Mm -hmm. they ask where you're really from because the assumption is that you couldn't possibly be American. Mm -hmm. Uh, Comments like, you speak English really well, right? Again, Mm -hmm. this idea that you are other and you don't belong here and I and people that look like me belong here. And then there's like the whole other um, ball of wax, which is um, just the hypersexualization of Asian women. Mm. And, you know, 
I can't tell you how many times I've heard men say, I really am into Asian women and having a fetish, fetish, oh, I can't say that word, having a fetish with with, um, Asian women and having this idea that we are submissive or Mm. um, that we're sexually really wild or anything in between. Um, So I think um, that one too is like, we could have a whole other conversation about that. Mm. Yeah, you know, and as we're sitting here talking about microaggressions, something comes to mind, something that I know I have done in the past, and it's related to names. I know that names are so important, but I know that for myself in the past, when I have met somebody in that is an Asian American or Pacific Islander, and I'm worried that I won't be able to pronounce their name correctly. I will sometimes not use their name in conversation or I'll dance around it instead of just asking or, um, you know, instead of learning this person's name, um, how to pronounce it correctly. And gosh, as I'm thinking about it, that absolutely could be a microaggression. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. I've also noticed um, that people sometimes will change their names when they immigrate here. And maybe that's in response to these microaggressions. I, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on, on just names um, and how it relates to microaggressions. You're on to something. Absolutely. I mean, okay. So uh, my name is Therese. It's an a Anglo name, and or I think it's actually French in origin. So I yeah. didn't deal with this so much on a personal level, but it's something that I see my Asian brothers and sisters deal with all the time, which is this minimization of the importance of, of their name. And yeah. I do want to say in a diverse country like the United States, I also can relate to what you're saying about hearing someone's name and it's something that's not within my realm of familiarity and therefore I struggle with it, but I very much want to honor their name and and say it right. And um, I think that just, that's that's so understandable and relatable. Um, But I love that people are asking about this because it doesn't take that much effort for us to be take take one more step toward being considerate of that person and honoring their name and their culture. Yeah. So for example, one of the things that I try to do when someone has a name that is some a name I haven't heard before or one that I might struggle with is I try to record a voice note in my phone um, of saying their name. Or maybe even if I have that rapport, I'll ask them to say it for me because people really appreciate yes. that you honor them and, and want to say their name right. Or I might say, please correct me if I say it wrong. I'm going to try my best. And I think that um, people really appreciate when someone respects you enough to to want to say your name correctly. Um, the truth is that, yeah, whether it started in classrooms, right? So I think teachers didn't want to say the name that was not okay for them. And so at times they would give kids a, a more English-based name um, mm. or the kids didn't want to be embarrassed by hearing their name said incorrectly. So then they would default to an, an English name. Um, and when you think about it, it's – Again, it's it's a personal choice, but it can it can reflect a loss of their culture, a loss of a piece of their identity and who they are. So the name um, dynamic and 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 even actually, I saw something where um, a Instagrammer was posting um, how to pronounce the names of the victims of the of the six women who mm. uh, were yeah. killed in Atlanta. 
um, in the shooting there. And I was like, wow, this is, this is a shift in our culture because before people didn't care very much. People didn't put that much effort in, but I think now they, they're starting to, because we're speaking up and saying, please say their names correctly. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking more to this. Names are really important, whether it's the name of a victim or the name of your neighbor. They carry so much importance for folks um, and can be connected to their culture and their family and their identity. So thank you. No, it's a, it, thanks for bringing it up. It's a great question. And I think one that we can easily overlook, but it's, it's so great to talk about it. So thank you. Okay. So you, you had mentioned earlier, um, you've been mentioning here a couple of times here, some of the stigmas you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, this idea of the model minority. Can you, can you speak a little bit more to mm-hmm. some of the unique cultural challenges and I would love to also touch on some of the strengths um, that you've witnessed in this community mm-hmm. as it relates to mental health and access to support. Um, so um, maybe it would make sense for me to address the model minority myth just a little bit more. Um, and then we can dive yeah. in. Um, so the model minority myth is is basically this set of stereotypes about Asians and Pacific Islanders that all kids are smart. Everybody is uh, a doctor or a scientist or something like that, and that we're passive and that um, the men are nerdy and never the leading man or and never considered like uh, sexy or attractive, just always um, more effeminate. And, um, and that as a whole, we're polite and we follow the rules and keep our head down. And obviously the problem with that is, uh, and this is coming up a lot in conversations within the AAPI community. Um, The problem with that is the API community is not a monolith. And so it's, it's actually a representation of more than 50 ethnic groups and more than 100 languages. And each of those groups has their own values, culture, uh, myriad of religions and ways of, of seeing the world. And so it's problematic to see this group as just one thing. And obviously that myth um, is also problematic because it's used to harm, it's, it's used against other people of color because essentially it's used to sustain white supremacy by saying, hey, look at, look at the yeah. Asians. They're, they're doing better than you. So therefore, any difficulty that comes your way is because of you and is, is your fault because they're doing well. And as you can imagine, that's very problematic because there is actually a lot of diversity within the Asian Pacific Islander experience. And whether it's being, being, uh, I'm sorry, whether it's financially going from wealthy to being on the side of struggling or living in poverty, or whether it's their education level or even where they live, there's just so much um, diversity there. And um, so really the model minority myth, while it may seem like it serves Asians because it, it kind of quote unquote makes us look good, it's really just a tool um, of white supremacy and mm. or you could say colonialism and it's, it's, it's to hold other groups down. Could you um, define colonialism for us here for anyone who's listening who might not mm. um, know what that means? 
Sure. Yeah. It's funny. I've never really sat down and, and defined it, so I'll do my best. But essentially, yeah. it's um, it's the idea that the when England came and colonized um, countries like uh, the United States, and yeah. it's the idea of going to other places and saying, this land is ours, and we're going to make you follow our culture and our rules. And obviously, yeah. throughout world history, there have been many countries that have been um, colonizers and many countries and cultures that have been colonized. And so um, colonization is this idea that there's a dominant culture and that everybody must um, fall in line with what the dominant culture expects. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you did a beautiful job of (laughs) unpacking that. Thank you. put you on the spot there. But yeah, I think that I think that it's sometimes I think that part of um part of the work, right, is when we you we hear these these terms thrown around, um, we might just kind of brush past it. And mm-hmm. but to actually spend time with understanding the history of colonization, mm-hmm. right? To um to put it in context and then to bring that to bring that understanding then to present day and how this is still happening. Mm-hmm. I know that for me and my own anti-racism work, sometimes really diving into understanding the context of these things um helps, right? It helps it helps shed a light on why why it's important, right? And why it's mm-hmm. relevant. Um even today. Oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many words I've tried to I've looked up and tried to understand better in the past year, especially with um, yeah. everything going on with the BLM movement. And um, I think colonialization is an interesting one, just because being Filipina American, the Philippines has been colonized multiple times, right, by Spain and by the United States, and so it's something that is very embedded in our culture. And it's almost impossible to tease out Filipino culture from Spanish culture or the American influences as well. And um, it's it's um, very difficult um, when you're trying to hang on to what you love about your culture when you when you see that certain parts of that are are um, subdued because of this colonial mentality. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so. We're here talking here about the the model minority myth, um, and maybe you could also share with us some of the the stigmas mm-hmm. um, and the challenges as it relates to um, you know the cultural challenges that re- as it relates to mental health and access to support, um, and then maybe we can move into talking about some of the strengths too, because I think mm-hmm. that in these conversations, right, it's so. Um, of course, we want to, we're naming the struggles because we want to shed a light on them. But I think that sometimes mm-hmm. then the strengths get lost in that too, right? Um, the cultural strengths. And so let's let's explore both of those if we can. Sure. Okay. So on the stigma side, um, mental health stigma is is rampant in AAPI culture. In fact, uh, Asian American Pacific Islanders have the lowest rate of seeking help of any racial or ethnic group. Um, so here's a statistic I thought was really um, sad. Only 23% of AAPI adults with a mental illness received treatment in 2019. And so a majority of AAPI adults are not receiving treatment. Um, Mm. so the stigma is rampant because our culture is, um, our uh, cultures that are, are AAPI typically have a sense of shame um, with anything related to therapy. It's viewed as 
uh, taboo, not something that you speak about. Um, and so that that's one of the factors that makes it difficult is that they're just less likely to ask for help. Um, also, I think last I checked, less than 4% of therapists have an uh, Asian Pacific Islander background. And so there's also a lack of therapists to address the needs of, mm. of our communities. And obviously therapists who are culturally competent because we can identify with these cultures. And this is a huge problem because there's so many people that are looking for help um, with the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, um, and there's not enough therapists to support them. So that's really kind of a, a ground up problem because we need more Asian Pacific Islanders to enroll in programs and become therapists and be encouraged to do that sort of thing. And so there's definitely some barriers there. But speaking to the strengths, and I love that you asked this too, um, typically within um, many cultures that make up Asian American Pacific Islanders, um, there's a huge sense of, um, of being communal, family-oriented, um, family bonds are super strong, and so there's a lot of of support um, in that way. When things go wrong, typically you will have your extended family to to rely on. And mm -hmm. um, so that that's kind of a, a beautiful thing about, um, about AAPI, um, about the AAPI community is that we often have the, uh, because we have less of that individualistic culture narrative running through, yeah. um, we can look to our family for support and for help with some of the things that we're struggling with. Now, obviously, there that's an individual thing and a, and, a, and unique to every culture. Um, I'm part of some Asian culture Facebook groups, and and some people might be just as likely to say, like, I can't talk to my parents about what I'm struggling with, <laughs> and others might say that they can. Um, yeah. But um, because Asian American Pacific Islanders are on the whole um, connected to um, someone in their family who's been an immigrant, there's also just so much resilience and strength um, mm -hmm. within our communities because oftentimes um, immigrants are, for me, it would be like my parents' generation um, or maybe like one or two generations uh, removed um, have escaped um, violence in their home countries, uh, genocide, um, poverty. I know from uh, from many Filipinos, they're escaping uh, poverty, and and have found a way to make it in another country. So um, our people are extremely resilient because they've learned to overcome all of that, mm -hmm. and and um, find a way to make it in in the U.S. And even with all of that generational resiliency. For those mm -hmm. who are listening and they have heard you talk about things that they are resonating with and that they have found over the past year that they're feeling more anxious, they're feeling depressed, mm -hmm. they feel like they have experienced direct trauma, microaggressions, or vicarious trauma. Mm -hmm. For those who are, who are listening, who are members of the AAPI community, mm -hmm. what 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 are the resources? What are the steps mm -hmm. that they can take to get the support that they need and and deserve? There are thankfully some great resources resources out there, but the truth is that we need more of them. And so, yeah. um, 
so some of the the places that I like to tell people to go for help are, um, I have a colleague on Instagram. I, I think you might be connected to her too, but um, Dr. Jenny Wang, she runs Asians for Mental Health on Instagram. Yeah. That's at yeah. Asians for Mental Health. And she has built an incredible community of support, specifically addressing the needs of, uh, the mental health needs of the Asian community. There's also the Asian Mental Health Collective, which is a group of different um, folks, I think many of whom have a mental health background or, or work as therapists, and they've collected resources um, uh, as well. There are directories that are specifically built for people of color. So um, my friend Eric Coley has a directory called Ayana Therapy. Ayana exists for BIPOC individuals, that's Black Indigenous people of color. Um, and so I think those are some of the, um, the, the places that can be helpful as a starting point. I would also just say to folks, follow, you know, if you're, if you're just starting this conversation or you're just wanting to kind of understand a little bit more for yourself or you're dealing with something, follow Asian Pacific Islander mental health professionals and, and leaders, uh, on Instagram. Mm. I love Jamila Jamil. I don't know if you're, mm-hmm. if you follow her, but her community I weigh is incredible yep. and empowering. And she's talking about a lot of really just important things to help people, um, to help acknowledge people's struggles and pain and bring a voice to the voiceless. Um, so yeah, those are a few of my favorite places, but we, we need more, um, resources as well. The, the truth is that we probably just don't have enough at this day, at this time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to include links to all of these resources that you've named here in the show notes for those who are listening and they are ready to take some of those steps or want to dive in more to some of those resources. And before we wrap up here, Dr. Therese, so I'm, my hope is that um, the listeners are going to be members of the AAPI community and that you're going to be opening some of these doors for them to get support. But I'm also hoping that some some listeners are, are, are not members of the AAPI community and are hoping to continue to do their work um, as allies. And so what are... What are some ways in which people can continue to support the AAPI community this month and beyond? Oh, thank you for thank you for caring and and for that. Um, I uh, want to make people aware of a resource called Stop Asian Hate. Um, the website stopasianhate.com, I believe. And they are leading research to help us understand and gather data about what's happening to um, the AAPI community right now. And I believe that they are taking donations to help support the work that they do. Um, so that's that's one powerful thing that you can do is, is donate and support. And also, kind of on the other end, this is something that is easily accessible to, I think, pretty much everybody. Um, but ask your friends, ask your API friends how they're doing. Mm. I am so um, comforted when I have friends that check in on me and just say that they have seen what's going on and want to know how I am. And it's great when they just check in and say, you don't have to respond. I just want you to know I see you yeah. and 
and I recognize that this might be impacting you and I care, but I've received so many of those messages in the past couple of months and they mean so much to me. Um, one of the things I always um, suggest to people, you know, being a therapist and caring a lot about feelings is to ask people twice how they're doing. So, mm. you know, how are you? I'm fine. How are you really? And then waiting mm. to hear what they have to say, because usually the second answer is different, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's so true. I'm just adding that really, like after, mm. you know, I, I, mm. my whole my whole focus is um, primarily on peripartum mental health. And one thing I always suggest there is when you check in on someone who's recently had a baby and you want to ask, you want to really know how they're doing. When you ask, how are you doing? Put a comma and then put a really question mark. <laughs> like mm-hmm. It's just an invitation um, totally. to, yeah, it's just an invitation to say, hey, I, I actually am very interested in how you are really doing, even if it's hard, right? Like even yes. if it's if it's not rainbows and butterflies, right? Um, and and my the hope is that you're, I'm not going to then try to find the silver lining, right? Um, in in your pain, I, I want to just hold space for your experience um, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. as a friend, as someone who loves you and cares about you. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of times it's just about managing our own anxieties about someone else's pain, and mm. it can be a little bit of that. Um, gut reaction to just tell them it's all going to be okay or try to smooth it over and wrap it up in a pretty bow. And the truth is that when you're in pain, you don't really need someone to make it better. You just need someone to care. And so I'm just so grateful that there have been so many people that have um, taken the time to reach out and, and, and show that they care about me. Um, Just one last thing I would say people can do who are interested in being allies is to continue to invest in their own education and insights, to take the effort to hire educators. And I am so grateful to our brothers and sisters in the Black community who have been paving the way for the rest of us for generations. And thanks to them, there are so many resources, so many books, so many educators and teachers out there who have taught me so much. And I feel like I still have so much to learn, but I I know you're a big fan of the Loveland Foundation and and they're fantastic. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I think just, there's just honestly so many great, great leaders to follow um, who um, just, unfortunately, they've experienced such difficult things um, that have made them experts on talking about racism and discrimination and and but but their anti-racism work helps all of us. So, you know, even if it means just taking five or ten minutes to read an article or scroll the feed of Rachel Cargill, for example, um, these things make a huge difference. And the the better we are as individuals, the better our communities are. Yeah. Um, you know, right now, and I'm just sharing this for those who are listening who are like, okay, I'm ready. I want to do, I want to do the work. And, um, some, some steps that I've taken over this past year, um, in addition to hiring a diversity consultant for my business, um, to continue to learn and unlearn and uh, make sure that um, both from a business perspective and personally that I am continuing to do my work to um, 
smash the patriarchy and smash white supremacy and and acknowledge the ways in which I am contributing to it and what are ways in which I can continue to um you know, fight racism for my personally and professionally. Um, also, you know, reading books, but not just reading books and then finishing the book and being done, but having conversations, you know, um, I've been reading the book Do Better um, by Rachel Ricketts. And there's a couple of people who, as we're reading this book together, we're in conversation about it, right? And having dialogue around this. Um, as a professional, doing making sure that I'm continuing to include trainings in my continuing education, um, and yeah, and and when you when you see things, when you see things that are happening that are microaggressions, macroaggressions, um, that we are speaking up, that we are putting ourselves in a position, even when it's uncomfortable, right, to speak yes. against racism when we see it happening. And that is maybe the hardest but most impactful thing that we can do is when we are facing the ugliness of hate and racism to have the courage to speak up. Just one thing I'll add is that um, a few weeks ago, there was a Filipina-American woman who was walking to church in New York and she got brutally attacked. And in the, it was really distressing because in the video, um, uh, you see that there are security guards that did not like run Mm -hmm. to her rescue. And and it was very disheartening. But um, we found out that um, from her daughter, actually, that what you couldn't see in the camera was that there was someone across the street that was yelling and trying to distract the attacker. Mm -hmm. And it's, I have no doubt that because of this individual's courage, she's still alive. Um, Obviously very injured, but recovering and still alive. And so I... We'll take a page out of my favorite person's book, Mr. Rogers, look for the helpers (laughs) Mm. and also be the helpers. Mm. Look for the helpers and be the helpers. And I think that, you know, this, these, these actions can be actions like the one you just described, which made such a huge impact for the safety of this, of this individual. Um, Mm. And these actions can be what feel like small actions such as, hey, you're sitting on the dinner table with some relatives and somebody says something that's racist to 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 call it out, right? Like mm-hmm. to acknowledge like what are the relationships that I have with people that these are people that I that I love, that I that trust me, that I have a um a good relationship with. And they say things that are racist. And can I can I can I leverage on my relationship with them to do to do work right with them to name some of these things to to bring them into the anti-racism work that needs to happen in our country right to enlist them in this work um, and and that's something that might feel small and it happens it's not going to be something that shows up on social media it's not going to be something that anybody else is a witness to but it matters it really yes. really really deeply matters um, and so that's that's also something that I'm trying to consider. What are relationships that I have um, leverage in, right? Because they these are people that trust mm-hmm. me and they love me and they care about me, and I can in my in relationship with them um, enlist them into doing anti-racism work as well. Oh well, I that obviously is music to my ears, and you know we're both therapists, right, Dr. Cassidy? So like we know <laughs> that a lot of the best work comes from uncomfortable conversations, yeah. and so. 
thank thank you to you for your heart and what you are open to doing and, and mindful about. And also thanks to every person who's listening who decides that they're going to have an uncomfortable conversation with someone because they know that a perspective that they're holding or something they've said isn't okay. I know how hard it is, but it makes such a difference. And so thank you in advance. And thank you, Dr. Therese, for coming on and talking about um, racism and anti-racism and mental health for a community that you are a part of yourself, right? Like you are, you've been walking through this year um, with the rest of the AAPI community as well. And, and I'm just so grateful for you. I hope that, and I imagine that you as a therapist know that it's important for you to take care of yourself so that you can come on and have these kind of conversations. And I'm so grateful to you um, for doing your work so that you can continue, can continue to show up for the AAPI community as a whole um, as well. Where can people find you and your work and all the beautiful things that you have to offer the world? Oh, thank you, friend. Um, So I have a website. It's exploringtherapy.com or on Instagram. They can find me at exploring.therapy. And if you listen to the podcast, please shoot me a message and let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Wonderful. I'm going to share those ways that people can connect with you in the show notes so you can head straight to there if you are interested in learning more from Dr. Therese. Therese, thank you again so much. As always, such a joy to connect with you. I'm so grateful to be connected to you. And again, just so grateful. Thank you. Thanks. This was so great. And thanks for making the space. You're the best. You've been listening to Holding Space Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, you might want to hit that subscribe button to be the first to hear when new episodes air. Looking for more support? I teamed up with a board-certified OBJN to bring you two e-courses for expecting and postpartum parents. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Thank you so much for inviting me into part of your day today. I'm so grateful, and I hope you have a beautiful, wonderful rest of your day.